Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so they would then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now in the middle of the application section of this letter, and it's been very challenging. And the call is to rise to the challenge because we love Christ. And love for Christ compels us to continue on in our quest to honor Him with our fast and fading life. Recently, Paul's been imploring us to be Spirit-filled Christians who do the will of God as found in the Word of God. Generally, that's seen in many ways, but specifically and in context, Paul's told us that God's will for us in Christ is to be filled with the Spirit continually. Filled to the brim with the Spirit who lives in us. To sing in the heart and, and of course, out loud. To give thanks always for all things. And then to submit to one another in the fear of God. After that, Paul had a word for Spirit-filled wives who were doing the will of God. And then he had some words for Spirit-filled husbands who were doing the will of God. What was the call then? The call was to lead, to lead well, to lead in a godly way, and to lead as a Christ-like example. Why? Because while we are equal, we are also different. And God has created the husband to be the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And that is a massive responsibility that we should all take very seriously because God is watching. Today, Paul continues to talk to husbands. You guys ready? All right. We like this, right? We like to be challenged with the Word of God. This is good for us. This is what men who want to honor and glorify God want. Here we go. All right, let's, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church." Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the, hus- let the wife see that she respects her husband. So look, here we find that the Spirit-filled husband isn't just called to lead, which we looked at last time, but he's also called to love his wife. How? Well, how about this? To love his wife like Christ loved the church. Is that all? I mean, uh, oh, is that, I mean, that is a high calling, Right? Christ loves the church. That is a fact. Christ passionately loves the church, the people of God, us. In fact, Paul makes a parallel between the relationship with the husband and wife and a relationship with Christ and the church. And it's very interesting. See, Scripture says that the church is the bride of Christ. That Christ is the bridegroom and He is sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. 
And just as there was a betrothal period in biblical times when the bride and groom were separated until the wedding day, so is the bride of Christ separate from the bridegroom during this church age. We're not physically with him yet, right? We're not there yet. But look, our responsibility during this betrothal period is to be faithful to him. But then one day in the future, the church will indeed be united with the bridegroom and the official wedding ceremony will take place. And with it, the eternal union of Christ and his bride, us, will be fully realized in glory forever. What a picture. It's a picture of incredible love and sacrifice, Christ, for us. Again, the church who is betrothed to Christ and with Christ who has paid the dowry for us with his own life and soon in the future we will then be presented to Christ and the wedding banquet will end the ceremony and it'll be a perpetual feast where we will live forever in the Father's house and we will receive all the blessings of being with and of being in Christ forever. So yeah, Christ loves the church, the people of God, us passionately passionately. So let's look at the great love that Christ has for us a bit, remembering that that love is an example of how husbands are called to love their wives. See, as Christ loved the church, so too must husbands love their wives. So here's the question. Does Christ love us? All right, let's look. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height of what? Verse 19, the love of God for us, his children, his bride, which he says is a love that passes knowledge. So Paul prays that the Ephesians would be able to comprehend something that's incomprehensible. He prays that they would know something that they can't truly know because it's so great. He prays for them to be able to understand something that's impossible to fully understand, the love of God for us. But it's good to try to comprehend it. For all of us, it's good to try to comprehend it, and especially for husbands who are called to love their wives like that. So, how much does he love us, the church, his bride? How much? Well, So much so that it's impossible to comprehend, grasp, seize, apprehend with our minds the width, the length, the depth, and the height of God's great love for us. These measurements emphasize the immensity of Christ's love for us. So you can go left or right, forward or backward, up or down, as far as you can, and you still haven't explored all that there is to know of Christ's great love for us. Look, Christ's love for us is wide in the sense that there's no care of ours that's beyond the measure of his great love. I mean, think about this. In glory, we will all be amazed when we see what the love of God in Christ has accomplished in spite of sin, hell, and the devil. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted, it's not surprising that the apostles should pray so earnestly that these Ephesians might know this because this changes your entire outlook When you tend to feel depressed and when you're tempted to doubt whether there is any future for the church, seeing all the chaos that's going on in our world, 
The answer is to look at the breadth of Christ's love. Because once you begin to realize the breadth of his love, you will lift up your head again. Your heart will begin to sing once more. And you will realize that you have the precious privilege of being one humble member in a mighty army. One member in this thronging multitude who will spend their eternity in the presence of the Lamb of God and enjoy Him forever. Oh, the breath of His love. That's absolutely right. It brings joy, the love of Christ for us. It gives perspective. It it changes your outlook, the immense love of God for us. Guess what? Husbands are to love their wives like that. That much. Okay, so what about the length of his love? The length of his love conveys the endless character of the love of Christ. We read in Jeremiah 31.3 about the everlasting love of God. And that thought alone is beyond comprehension. I mean, come on. Have you ever really thought about the eternity of Christ's love toward you, his child, and towards his bride, us, the church? Everlasting means that God's love for us, his bride, is something that began in eternity. It was always there. (laughs) It was always there. And think about this. Before time, before the world and man were ever created, look, an agreement was made between God the Father and God the Son. It was agreement, an agreement concerning us, concerning the salvation of those who would be saved, the bride of Christ. See, everything was known about what was going to happen before anything was ever created, including sin and including the fall of man. And so Jesus, God the Son, entered into an agreement with his Father that he would save his people and redeem his people, us, all who believe. How? God the Son would leave glory and he would come here. He would take on human flesh, live a perfect life, die on the cross in the believer's place as their substitute, and then rise up from the dead three days later, proving that what he would do on that cross would be a reality. What would that be? He will die to pay the full wages of the sin of every true believer in human history so they could then be forgiven of all that sin that condemns them to hell. He will face God's wrath on the cross in the believer's place so that the believer can instead be showered with grace and saving mercy. Think about that. That means everything to us. But oh, what a cost it was to him. What a plan. God the Son doing all of that for us. You say, really? Well, yeah, yeah. Talk about love. Guess what? Husbands are called to love their wives like that. And then think about this. Christ's love to us didn't suddenly come into being. No, it was there before the beginning of time. That's why it says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13.8. How incredible is that? That I was known by Christ in eternity. Every one of us who belongs to him were known to him in eternity past, and our names were written in his book. So was the length of his love toward us before time. But even more, it began in eternity, and it continues in time right now, and then it continues on throughout eternity future. Think about that. The length is an unbroken line. It doesn't suddenly cease and then start up again. No, it's an unchanging love. It's a love that never gives up. It's a love that never lets go. It's a love that never falters. Husbands, you're called to love your wives like that. (laughs) It's impossible, yes. 
But it's our aim. It's our goal. We see this love in the parable of the prodigal son. In spite of the fact that the younger son had been a fool and had gone to a faraway and sinful country, spurning the love that has been shown to him in his home, and despite the fact that he had wasted his inheritance on the sinful and fading pleasures of that sinful faraway country, look, his father still loved him. His father was waiting and he was watching for his return. And his father showered great blessing on him when he did indeed return. Remember what he did when he saw his son coming home? He ran, right? He ran, and that's a picture of the love of God towards us, his beloved children. See, he's patient, he's long-suffering, he bears with us, he never gives up on us. So we see that his love toward us as children is, is relentless. Wherever we may go, he will not let us go. As God has said to his own, I will never, never leave you, nor forsake you. Guess what? Husbands are called to love their wives like that. Like Christ loved the church. Look what Romans 8, 35 through 36 says. Who shall separate us, the Christian, the bride of Christ, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or peril or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Here, Paul is asking the hard questions when it comes to the love of God for us as children. Is there anyone who can banish the justified Christian from the love of Christ? Is there any force anywhere that can come between you and Jesus once you belong to him? Paul's answer, no, nothing, nothing, not even death, nothing at all. And please remember that God's love for you, his child, is perfect right now. He will never love you any more or any less than he does right now because he loves you fully right now as his child, his bride. Your actions as a Christian don't affect God's love for you. See, that's important. Your actions can glorify Him, honor Him, and be well-pleasing to Him. Oh yes, they can also grieve Him and sadden Him, but they won't affect the love that He has for you, His child. Because He loves you, His child, fully and completely right here, right now. So think about it. He set His love on you before time began. He loves you with a perfect and unchanging love, and nothing can separate you from that love, nothing. He died to save you. He will see you through all the way to glory forever, and you will experience that love for all eternity. Paul continues on in Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Got it? <laughs> I mean, are, are we not clear here? <laughs> this truly is the best news that there ever was. It means that God will never forget us or cease to care for us, and that he remains our forbearing father even when we act the prodigal. Look, life isn't always easy, but God loves us, his bride, passionately this morning. What else matters in light of that? For us, life often seems so much more difficult than death. But even death doesn't separate us from God. It just draws us to him in fuller measure. What comfort What consolation, what strength it gives, what a rock for us in times of trial and adversities. One said it like this, if hell be let loose, if everything goes against you, nothing will ever cause him to let go of you. It's absolutely right. And look, you ready husbands? Husbands are called to love their wives like that. Think about that. Yeah, again, 
It's impossible to love like this. But we are called to die trying. This is our example and we're called to earnestly seek to do this. To love our wives in this manner more and more and more until death. How you doing? How about this? The call is to love your wife, look what it says, as Christ loved the church. Okay, so what did he do for us? What did he do for the church? Well, he gave himself for the church. And husbands are called to do the same for their wives. As Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus humbled himself to the lowest degree to save us. Think about the depth of his love for you as he entered into the virgin's womb, as he took onto himself a human nature, think about that, and as he came and lived as a man in this sin-stained world. God did that for us. We know about the poverty and the lowliness of his home into which he was born. We know how he felt everything that we feel as human beings minus sin. I mean, he felt pain. He felt hunger. He got bruises. He bled. He got callous feet. He had to work. And all the while, he's the eternal son of God. He did all that for us. And then think about how much he suffered to save us. He gave himself for us. All the hatred, the malice, the spite. Think of men laying cruel hands on him, arresting him, trying him, mocking him, jeering at him, and spitting in his most holy face. Think of cruel men condemning him to death and then scourging him. Look at him staggering under the weight of the heavy cross on his way to Golgotha. Look at him as he's nailed to that tree and listen to his expressions of agony and thirst as he endured all the pain, all the wretchedness, all that suffering. And then think of the terrible moment when our sins were laid upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The agony he felt for us. He died a brutal, gory, painful, horrible death. And then he was buried and laid in a grave. He, God the Son, the author of life, the creator of everything, he lies dead in a grave. Why did he do all that? Because of his love for us. Because of his love for us. Because he loved us, his bride. Such is the depth of his love. Husbands, You're called to be like that to your wife. You're called to love your wife like that. His love for us goes even further in the fact that he not only loved us enough to die for us and save us, but he also desires that we should be with him forever in glory. And that we should see something of that glory which he shared with the Father from all eternity. See, he isn't satisfied with purchasing our forgiveness and delivering us from the pollution of this sinful world, as amazing as all that is. But he wants us to be there with him in glory and to spend our eternity there with him. Again, the incredible love of God, the undeserved love that God has for us, his children. Husbands, you're called to love your wives like that, passionately, intensely, sacrificially, selflessly, tangibly. Christ gave himself for you. You are called to give yourself to your wife in that same manner. Anybody overwhelmed right now? We should be. This is our call. Some might say, but I don't feel it. Well, so what? Right? I mean, this is the call for husbands, end of story. And true agape love is an action anyhow. It's an action. And so, even if you don't feel it, the call 
is still for you to give yourself to your wife as Christ gave himself for the church. What, what does that tangibly mean? It means that you lay down your life for her on a daily basis and it shows by your actions. Look, Christ giving himself for the church is seen most clearly when we see our Savior hanging on that cross for us, suffering for us, bloodied and battered, laying down his life for us, and dying a brutal death for us, the church, his bride. So what's the call? Well, to do that for your wife. <laughs> do that for your wife. Deny yourself and love her. Put your, her needs first ahead of yours. Sacrifice for her. Forgive her. Serve her. Give yourself for her. Put her first and you second. Bleed for her. Suffer for her. Die for her. And that'll show in how you treat her every day in your marriage, in the little things and in the big things. Give yourself to her every day. Christ not only gave himself for the church, but he sanctifies and cleanses the church. Verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word. Picture it like this. It's the Hebrew bride's wedding day, the day of her dreams. She rises with the dawn in anticipation and the hours speed by. Her friends join her for her ritual marital bathing, which was something that they did back then. The cleansing bath is completed and she's now clothed in her embroidered linen wedding dress and wedding sandals. She waits breathlessly without spot, without wrinkle for her bridegroom. It's a great picture. That's not the only picture though, because we also have the picture of the church, the bride of Christ and the bridegroom. And just as the bride is to adorn herself for the wedding, Christ is the one who adorns us, and he does a good job. I mean, he's the one who makes us clean. He's the one who makes us pure. He's the one who justifies us. He's the one who makes us right. He's the one who prepares us as a pure bride. Again, not only in justifying us and cleansing us from all our sin, which he did on the cross because of all that, but also in sanctifying us and helping us to grow in our faith and to grow in our godliness more and more and more. How does he do that primarily? Through his word, right? His powerful, living, active, inspired word. The picture then switches to the return of Christ when the washed and regenerated church is presented by Christ to himself in absolute perfection, completely free from any ethical or spiritual stain. The official wedding is ready to begin where we will then be with Christ in glory forever, adorned, ready, pure, clean, not only justified, not only sanctified, but also glorified. How good is that? But then on top of that, there's the earthly marital picture. It's of a woman who throughout her life has grown to be more and more and more like Christ. Her salvation and sanctification are solely due to the work of Christ. However, a prominent instrument in her progressive spiritual growth and sanctification has been her loving husband. He's been a humble partner and leader in developing her spiritual beauty and purity. How did that come about? Well, he's a man in whom the word of God richly dwelled himself. Because to lead your wife in godliness, you first need to be growing in your own godliness, of course. So there's that. And as her loving head, he has served her, and he has prayed for her, and he has loved her, and he has encouraged her onward and upward in her spiritual beauty and growth. And so we find that as the head, as the leader, he has played a massive role in his wife's godliness and in her spiritual growth. Oh yes, we are all responsible for ourselves. We are. But, 
However, the husband does indeed have a massive role in the wife's spiritual growth, for the good or for the bad. And just as Christ's love for his bride is a purifying love, so is a husband's love for his wife to be a purifying love. So question, is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you? Or is she like Christ despite you? It's supposed to be because of you. (laughs) See, as a husband who truly loves your wife, you will desire her purity. And not only will you desire it, but you will see to it that it becomes a reality more and more and more. And if you really love your wife, you're going to hate anything that defiles her, anything that mars her, anything that brings her down, anything that brings sin in. And look, anything that steals her purity will become to you a terrifying enemy. And if it's not, then something is wrong, especially if you're the cause of it. See, our call as husbands is to do everything we can to lead our wives to holiness, to to purity, and to godliness. And too many husbands these days do anything but that. They lead them into sin. They lead them into impurity. May that not be the case here. That means that we make sure that our wives are exposed to the Word of God because it's the Word that cleanses us through the Spirit. It means that we ourselves speak the truth and teach the truth and live the truth and that we give our wives every opportunity to take the Word in so that it can then do its work in her heart. This sanctifying love also means that we're certain to never lead our wives into sin. That you don't draw her into those things that are going to tempt her. That you don't take her to some form of entertainment that's going to expose her to some sinful feelings. That you protect her from a job that's going to do her harm spiritually or set her up for temptation and sin. No, protect her. Protect her and then help her. It means that you don't irritate her (laughs) or embitter her so that she falls into the temptation of anger. No, if you seek her purity, if you seek her holiness, then you will never lead her into anything that is going to produce sin in her life. We're not perfect in that, but this is our aim. Husbands, please don't bring ungodliness or sin into your home. No, you fight that sin. Lead by example. Be a man of God. Stop being so worldly if you are. So husbands, what are you doing to lead your wife in spiritual growth and holiness? What are you doing to strengthen her spiritually? If she's more spiritual than you are, what's up with that? Come on now. Fight sin and stop giving into it. Don't let those besetting sins control your life. Don't make excuses for those sins when they're glaring and hurting your Christian walk, where they're hurting your example to your wife and to your kids. No, stand up and fight for your own holiness, and that will affect your wife's holiness and your kids as well. No, help her be a godly woman. Show her what godliness is like. Lead her well and be a man of God and make sure that she eats up and applies the word of God in her own life as much as you can. Follow the example of Christ who sanctifies and cleanses the church. Is that true of you? Anybody challenged? Uh, We're not done. What else? Christ presents the church as glorious, verse 27. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now look, this will indeed happen, right? This will be the reality for the church someday. Christ loves us so very much that we will be 
glorious. Amen to that. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, see, Christ justifies us. He declares us righteous even though we are sinful, marred, dirty, and nasty. He declares us right and made sure of that by dying on a cross as our substitute, doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. While that's true, we all know that practically speaking, we all have a long way to go at being truly glorious, without spot or wrinkle, at being holy and at and without blemish. See, none of us has arrived at perfection, no. We all have a long way to go, practically speaking. There are no perfect Christians, there are no perfect churches. But look, He carries us through, right? He helps us along. He gives us His Spirit and His Word to to move us along, and He never lets us go or forsakes us, never, no, never. And then one day, think about this, in the near future, we will indeed be truly glorious where sin will finally be done away with and we will be perfected and made glorious once and for all. Can't wait. Anybody else? Can't wait. Think about this in the context of Ephesians. Look, in 1.4, God chose believers in order that they might be holy and blameless before Him in love. All that's accomplished by the Father's selection, Christ's redemption, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. This is achieved by giving new life to sinners and placing them in a new entity, the church, a body composed of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. This new body of believers is to live in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. Finally, that which was planned in eternity past will be accomplished when Christ presents to himself the church that is holy and without blame, which is still in the future. But it's coming And Christ will make absolutely sure of that. See, he's always looking out for our ultimate good. And husbands are called to love their wives in this same manner. What does that mean? It means that you want your wife to be as glorious to God as possible when your earthly time with her is done. And it means that you do all that you can to make sure of that. That our wives will be women of God, pure, holy, without blemish, glorious, as much as possible because of our godly leadership and and our Christ-like love. And as God looks down at how we're doing at loving our wives, he is indeed well-pleased. That's the goal. And the question is, is he? Is he really? What a responsibility. What a calling. Men, don't wimp out. Rise up. Rise up. What else about Christ's love for the church? He nourishes and cherishes the church, and husbands are called to do the same for their wives. Verse 28. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Isn't that interesting? Love your wife as your own body. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we take care of our bodies, right? Relatively speaking, we do though. I mean, if our body is sick, we rest it so that it can heal. We take medicine so that it gets better. If our body is hungry, we feed it. We nourish it. We curb the appetite. If our body is thirsty, we go get it something to drink. We take care of our bodies in that sense. Think about it. If our body is cold, we put on a coat so that we keep warm. If our body is dirty, we take a shower so we get cleaned up. If our body's overheated, we get it cooled off. We take care of our bodies. We love our bodies in that sense. And that's the point here. To give 
attention to meeting needs like we meet our own body's needs, and then being concerned to fill those needs speedily and lovingly. And here, we husbands are called to treat our wives with the same preoccupation that we give to ourselves. And man, we give a lot of preoccupation to ourselves. Look, look what Paul adds. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's interesting. Here we see the oneness of the husband and the wife relationship, right? When you got married, you became not two, but, but one flesh. Leave, cleave, and become one flesh. So think about this. If her needs are met, your needs are met. <laughs> and if her needs are not met, your needs won't be met either. So you're called to give your wife the same care that you give to yourself because you go together, you are one. You're to take care of her as if she were you because you're one as a married couple. And so if you want real happiness in your marriage, then your call here as husbands is to care for your wife and all her needs with the same devotion that you give to yourself because you are one, one flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says this, Let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. In other words, meet each other's needs. Stop worrying about your needs. Meet her needs. <laughs> Don't deprive one another physically, and that sin happens way too often in too many marriages. Don't do that, and if you are, stop it now, because it's not good for your marriage. But instead, seek out your spouse's needs and desires ahead of your own. And this is just a principle not just for husbands, but also for the wives. Why? Because the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, why don't I have control over my own body? Because that's, that's what Paul says there. Because my own body isn't my own body. The married couple are no longer seen as two, right? They're seen as one. So treat each other like you treat yourself. Meet each other's needs. Seek out your spouse's welfare above your own and remember that you're one flesh and act like that in your marriage. Think of this. Men, if your wife isn't happy, is it really possible for you to be happy? Come on now. Right? I mean, and the other way around. The call here is to meet her needs as if your own body was cold or hungry or thirsty or sick or lacking intimacy or something else. She has needs and that means that you then have needs because she has needs and you are one. So are you meeting those needs with passion and with conviction? Do her needs come above your own needs which will then meet your needs? What does she need? She needs a man of God. She needs someone who will care for her, honor her, sacrifice for her, lead her, love her, show her affection, tenderness, care, passion, and so on. What about you? She needs to be cared for, understood, and valued. She needs you to love her like you love your own body because you are one. Is she loved like that? Look, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. The word nourish means to feed. It's a word used primarily of bringing up children. Nourishing, feeding, developing, nurturing them, and that's what Christ does for us and in many incredible ways, especially by giving us His Spirit and by giving us His Word, and that's what husbands are called to do for the wives. The word cherish literally means to warm with body heat. That's a good picture, isn't it? It's something, uh, it's sometimes translated to melt or to soften. 
The word is used of a nursing mother or of a mother bird who brings in her baby birds around her to keep them warm. It means to provide warmth for, security for, and care for, and, and to soften as opposed to harden. That's what Christ does for us in many incredible ways, and that's what husbands are called to do for their wives. So to nourish your wife is to provide for her needs, to give her that which helps her grow and mature in both the things of this life and in the things of the next life. To cherish means to use tender love and physical affection too, and to give her warmth and comfort and protection and to give security too. Are you doing that for your wife? That's the question. When you think of cherishing something, you think of drawing it into your heart, right? Of guarding it carefully, of valuing it, of prizing it. Your wife. Wayne Mack says that the call here is to treat your wife as you would an expensive, useful, sensitive instrument rather than a cheap, useless, indestructible tool. He's right. And again, just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, so are we to nourish and cherish our wives. Do you? Look what Paul, any, anybody else convicted besides me? No? You're liars. All right. <laughs> Look what Paul says next. We're members of his body, verse 30. We're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Look, back in Ephesians 1.23, Paul said that Christ is the head of the church, and the church is the body of Christ. In 2.16, it says that Christ reconciles us into one body. And then in 3.6, Paul says that we who believe are of the same body. The word body refers to an organized whole made up of parts and members. The term describes the relationship of Christians to Christ who is the head, the head being the vital organic center of the whole body. See, when Christ entered the world, He took on a physical body prepared for Him, and through His physical body, Jesus demonstrated the love of God clearly, tangibly, and boldly, especially through His sacrificial death on the cross. But look, after His ascension, Christ continues His work in the world through His body, that is, through those He has redeemed, the church, the people of God, the bride of Christ, who now demonstrate that love clearly, tangibly, and boldly in this world. And so, it's in this way that the church functions as the body of Christ. And look, everything that we have, everything that we are, is because of Him who is the head of the body. Him, right? It's all about Him. And we're all a part of the body. And look, Christ loves His body, His people, His bride, His church. That's why He nourishes and cherishes us, because we are His. We are intimately united to Him, the head. In like manner, husbands and wives are united like this. And they should function as such. Here, Paul is reminding us that God's design for marriage, as indicated back in Genesis, is that a man and woman leave their families, they come together, they cling to each other, and they enter into a physical union, they become one flesh. The word leave means to leave behind, it means to abandon, to depart from. The call is to depart from your parents and to make your spouse your number one earthly relationship. The word cleave literally means to be glued to. You come together 
to stick, right? And this is talking about oneness of mind, oneness of purpose, oneness of heart, oneness of emotion. You're, you're, you're glued together. Becoming one flesh is obviously talking about coming together physically, but it also goes much deeper than that. The heart of this is that you are to be enraptured with your spouse and with your spouse alone. You share something that no one else can share together. You love each other. You're satisfied with each other. You, you need each other. You belong to each other. See, this is true intimacy. This is true communion. This is truly the purest and greatest and most blessed and wonderful earthly relationship that God has ever given. The marriage relationship and the call is to guard it. To remember your union and to cherish your union. The, the covenant before God and men that you made the precious one flesh relationship. So question, what should motivate us to love like this? Verse 32. It's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So why should I love my wife like this? Like Christ loved the church, like I love my own body. Why should I love her selflessly and sacrificially? Why? Here's why. Because of the sacredness of marriage. See, Paul tells us that marriage isn't just marriage, but marriage is also a mystery, he says. A marriage among Christians is a picture of Christ and the church. So you need to treat your marriage with reverence and with awe, because marriage is a sacred symbol of Christ's relationship to us, his church, his bride. So here's the question. Are you a good picture to those around you of how Christ treats his church or are you a bad picture in your marriage? When people look at your marriage, what do they learn about Christ and the church? They should learn that Christ loves his church because you love your wife. They should learn that Christ gave himself for the church because you're selflessly giving up all for your wife day by day. They should learn that Christ earnestly desires to cleanse and purify his church because you're doing that for your wife, seeking her godliness, purity, holiness, and you're active in that process, in that pursuit. They should see that Christ loves the church and deeply, intimately cares for the church because you love your wife as your own self. In fact, you put her above your own needs and above your own desires. They should see that Christ cherishes the church intimately, deeply, from the heart, because that's how you treat your precious wife. And it shows through your service, your graciousness, your forgiveness, your humility, your actions, your words. It shows. They should see that Christ has a deep and intimate thriving agape love for his church because you have that for your wife. Is that the picture people see when they look at you in your marriage, when they look at you and how you treat your wife? Time to get busy, right? For husbands, our job is huge. And spirit-filled men rise to this great challenge. Look how Paul ends this section in verse 33. Throwing us guys just a little bone here. Here we go. (laughs) Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul ends this section with a final word for wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Respect your husbands. And next time I preach in Ephesians, I might talk more about this. (laughs) 
You say, John, he needs to earn my respect. Or he's not worthy of my respect. Or he doesn't deserve my respect. Yeah, that doesn't matter. <laughs> the call is clear. Respect your husband, treat him with respect. Doesn't matter if he deserves it. Doesn't matter if he's earned it or not. Doesn't matter if he's worthy of it in your own mind. The call is the call regardless. Interesting to note that the Greek word for respect here is a word phobotai from which we get our English word phobia. Now obviously it's not talking about being scared of your husband, but it refers to honor, to reverence, to respect, to esteeming your husband, and if for nothing else because it's your calling from God. One commentator named Constable said, a man must have the respect of his wife to feel successful as a man. You know that's true? That's true? How many men feel successful as men or don't because of their wife's actions in this area? Show your husband respect. Treat him with respect. Don't demean him. Honor him for the glory of God. What would your husband say about your respect of him today? We have much to think about. See, that's why I'm done talking about that, but we might have to get back to that. Um, We have much to think about. May God give us all ears to hear so that we not only receive his word for us today, but that we also earnestly seek to apply it for the glory of God. Because This is what spirit-filled men and women do. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to hear Your Word, to receive Your Word with joy, because we want to glorify You. We don't want to be mediocre. We want to honor You in every aspect of our lives, because You are worthy. So, Lord, help us as men, as husbands, to rise to the challenge. And... For those that um, aren't married, may they see this standard and may it encourage them. May we learn. But also, may they have a greater understanding of your great love for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your example. Thank you for doing for us everything that you've done. May we stand in awe of you and may we respond accordingly. May we receive your word with joy because you are worthy. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.